All right. We have uh, one minute before starting, so I'm going to use this opportunity to mention that in the back there, outside of this room, are some books, and they are zero price. So we, you can stand up and display these. It's a beautiful multicolored set of books. So uh, go ahead and take a copy. I encourage you, if you already have one, or if you work for the Cato Institute, don't take one until you see everyone else has had an opportunity because they only shipped 150 of each or about 160 people. Uh, but I'd like for everyone to have a copy. They're very nice collections that have just all sorts of different short essays. They're like intellectual snacks. You don't have to read a big, gigantic book, uh, and you can get from it what you want. So our next presentation, following on in a wonderful presentation last night, Gabriela Calderon. And she's going to be delivering this in Spanish, by the way. So. Uh, <laughs> The, I mean, people were so comfortable with uh, how I said the names with rolling R's that I figured I could do the whole presentation in Spanish. No, just, just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, today I'm going to talk to you about something that uh, is in the news a lot, especially in the past uh, decade, and it's uh, populism, particularly the Latin American brand of populism. Uh, First, I'd like to uh, start discussing what is populism. It is hard to define because one of populism's uh, main characteristics is that it is ideologically imprecise. And so you can find populists on the right and on the left. And it's very confusing sometimes because you might go to Argentina and you can ask a, a few of our fellow Argentinians here, uh, you know, uh, what uh, how, how does a Peronist on the right differ, how does he differ from a Peronist on the left? And there are both. And so, for example, in the 90s, Argentina had Carlos Menem, who was a Peronist from the right. And then you also had, uh, I mean, older examples of populism there is Juan Domingo Perón. And then you have in Mexico, Antonio López de Santana. In Ecuador, you, we had uh, Velasco Ibarra, who is, in some ways, people have compared him to our current president, Rafael Correa. And then you had uh, Peru's Alan Garcia on, uh, as an example of populism on the left. And uh, I'm referring, of course, to his uh, government during the 80s, not to his more recent government. And also you have Carlos Andres Perez in Venezuela. And, and so it, it's very diverse. And so it can be uh, difficult to define. But one thing that all populists have in common is a general contempt, if not an outright aversion to the rule of law, which is most of what we've been discussing this week in a lot of the, uh, a lot of the presentations. And, and so populism, uh, in whatever brand you might find, I mean, uh, in Europe or even American populism in general, you will find there's a contempt for pre-established legal order. And Alvaro Vargas Llosa, the son of Mario Vargas Llosa, also, uh, they're both Peruvian, and uh, Alvaro Vargas Llosa, he's a historian and a very well-known writer in Latin America. He says that a populist is he who abolishes the law in the name of all rights. And as you might have noticed, there's an ever-increasing and ever-growing list of rights. For example, in Ecuador, we have a constitution with 444 articles listing more than hundreds of rights. <laughs> and so you have uh, a basically a devaluation 
of rights, and in any in the name of any of those rights, you can uh, uh, sidestep the, the rule of law. Another uh, defining characteristic of populism is economic nationalism, uh, usually in the form of commercial protectionism. Also, a very important component is the perception of the people, or as we say in Spanish, el pueblo, as a whole and of the individual as a part of this uh, of the whole. Now, this might sound a lot like collectivism, and it is. You know, it's just another form of collectivism. And the Argentine sociologist, without using the word collectivism, this, uh, and his name is Juan José Severelli, he believes that populism can lead to totalitarianism because it perceives individuals as mere cogs in the machine that is society as a whole. It attributes to a collectivity the abilities of a person to think, do, say, etc. So that's a brief definition of what populism in general is. Here we have Evo Morales, the current president of Bolivia. Right, ne uh, right next to him is Alvaro Garcia Linera, the vice president of Bolivia. And if you read the quote, uh, I mean, I think that quote uh, illustrates the contempt for the rule of law. He thinks that lawyers go to school just to legalize whatever he thinks fit to do. And, and so that's an example that I thought it was worthwhile putting up there. Now, to define uh, more precisely our brand of populism, which is Latin American populism, uh, it, it always talks about an eternal fight against the oligarchy and, and the empire. And the empire, uh, it used to mean Spain, and, and in most recent times, it means the United States. People even say in a joking way whenever they travel to the United States for vacation, oh, I'm going to the empire. You know, it's kind of like a, a joke, but it's also something that people, um, in the mentality of a lot of Latin Americans, they feel like a lot of their problems are due to uh, whatever the U.S. has done or not done in the region. Again, I'm going to quote Alvaro Vargas Llosa. He says, populism rules against the traditional oligarchy even after it has died. And so, for example, we can uh, think of Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales and Rafael Correa, which basically they rose to power after destroying the party system or after the party system had been destroyed. And they keep talking about these old parties as if these old parties still had the fault for what's going on now, even after being in power 14 years in the case of Hugo Chavez or eight, almost eight years in the case of Rafael Correa. So they keep fighting against uh, a supposed traditional oligarchy even if to, after, it has after, after it has died. And then a uh, Venezuelan historian that I mentioned on Tuesday night, Carlos Rangel, uh, if, it, it's nice to have a PowerPoint now so you guys get to see the spelling of what I'm saying. But uh, Carlos Rangel, you know, he has a chapter in his famous book, uh, uh, the Latin Americans, their love-hate relationship with the United States, there's a chapter titled, The CIA Works for Everything. And, and that, what, what he meant when he said that is that it, it works as an explanation for all problems. You know, you can always blame it on the CIA, if not on the IMF or the World Bank or the National Endowment for Democracy or the USAID. And, and most of these um, stories, or shall we call them narratives, they have some grain of truth because some of the U.S. interventions in the region were, had uh, negative consequences and were not, uh, I mean, sometimes there was some support for uh, dictatorial regimes on the part of the U.S. because of what they thought was their national interest. And so it has some grain of truth, but most of what politicians say when they blame these uh, agencies is, 
is ludicrous. It's not really related. And then there's also the influence of culture, Latin American culture. You have uh, the influence of Uruguayan, Jose Enrique Rodos, uh, famous Ariel. And this influenced generations of Latin Americans. It's still required reading in some Latin American colleges. And what it is, it basically presents the superiority of the Latin American culture, or, or I mean, that's what the book tries to argue, over the mere utilitarianism by, the, by what Rodot called the Caliban of the North. And, and this was written right after the, you know, the, the Spanish-American Civil War, and, and so it was Rodot's attempt at trying to justify the failure to develop or the, 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 this uh, sense of inferiority by espousing a, a supposed cultural superiority. Now, Juan Domingo Perón, who many consider the quintessential representation of, of the 20th century Latin American caudillo, he used to define his way of governing as a third way between capitalism and communism. I just thought that was interesting, his definition, because today when we talk about a third way, it's something different. There's also uh, an omnipresent faith in government and in the governing caudillo uh, as the people's redeemer. Uh, and, and the Mexican historian Enrique Krause had a, a bestseller book a few years back called Redeemers, and I, I recommend that book because he talks in each chapter about certain figures that are, have influenced very heavily Latin American culture and political philosophy. And, and he, um, he named it redeemers because he described this, this tendency to see in, in these, like, um, in, in certain, certain man or woman, the ability to redeem entire classes that feel that have been oppressed. Sometimes rightly so, sometimes not so rightly so. But it, it's this faith in government as uh, in an agency that if, that if it's uh, led by the right person, might be able to solve all problems. Also, uh, populism always comes with the rhetoric of revolution, and it poses quite successfully as revolutionary. Argentinian writer Marcos Aguinis, he says that uh, populism poses as revolutionary, and it does so very well. In this manner, it attracts the passion of the young, the intellectuals, and solidary individuals who fall prey to the seduction of ideological juggling. But it is conservative, reactionary. It loves the status quo, given that the intended and dreamed revolution never comes. It kicks it down the road. In Argentina, there was a lot of graffiti calling for the completion of Perón's unfinished revolution. And there was a succession of Peronist movements, which called themselves authentic or reformist, as opposed to the original one, which was always a failed one in the end. I think Aguini sums up and explains uh, what, I mean, it, he explains a lot of what's going on in Argentina and what has been going on arguably since the 1930s. And, and so this is, uh, like, like I said before, it can lead to authoritarianism. Juan Jose Sebrelli from Argentina says it can lead to totalitarianism. They're different things, but I mean, most of populist governments end up being authoritarian, and we've seen it in the past decade in Latin America. They undermine, they start by undermining freedom of expression and of association. Then you have uh, the attempt to get unlimited re-election of presidents into the constitution, and then you have constitutions eroding the separation of powers. So that's a common threats in Latin American populism. 
here. This is not a picture of members of European royalty. No, this is Eva Perón and Juan Domingo Perón. Uh, she's wearing a dress by Dior. Uh, <laughs> And so she is known as the sort of like heroine of the Argentinian downtrodden. And here she is wearing Dior. And <laughs> she was uh, known to have devoted part of the state's resources for her own jewelry and clothes. When she died, she owned 1,200 gold and silver brooches, 1,653 diamonds, and 120 wristwatches. And you know, uh, Cristina Fernandez is trying her best to emulate Evita Perón. She's known to love, uh, she's known to have a Rolex president watch, and she loves Hermes, and she has several Hermes bags, and she loves Louis Vuitton, and she likes Christian Louboutin shoes. But she's very careful of the public image, so they say that she has uh, people in her posse paint the red soles of the Louboutin shoes so that nobody might find out that she's wearing such expensive shoes. This is just the curiosities of populism, you know. And then there's also an interesting vignette. Perón, in a letter to a retired Chilean general, Carlos Ibáñez del Campo, who had recently been elected president, he gave him an advice, you know, and he said, my dear friend, give the people, especially to the workers, all that is possible. When it seems that you have, that you already have given, you're already giving them too much, give them more. You will see the results. Everybody will try to frighten you with the specter of economic collapse. But all of this is a lie. There is nothing more elastic than the economy, which everyone fears so much, because no one understands it. <laughs> and so uh, Evita and Juan Domingo Perón, you know, they both shared a deep love of power. And it goes along with a la popular Latin American culture, like famous uh, literature Nobel Prize Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who recently passed away, he's known to have said in an interview, I have always believed that absolute power is the highest and most complete realization of being human. You know, there's not a distrust of power, there's actually an admiration of absolute power. And then uh, going back to uh, the, the Perones, you know, uh, they both led an authoritarian government. She was personally in charge of conducting censorship in the local press. During uh, Perón's first government, she ran a group of government newspapers. Only these newspapers had access to paper without restrictions. Uh, the rest of the newspapers had to manage with a reduced supply of paper printing in tiny fonts, because that way they could publish more news. Um, in today's Venezuela, uh, independent newspapers are about to go out of circulation due to a lack of paper. El Nacional warned a few months ago that they might only have paper to keep circulating until July of this year. So this month, I don't, and I was checking on the news today to see what's up with that, and they just had a forum about two weeks ago, and one of the members of the editorial board of El Nacional in Venezuela, he said, there can be no newspapers without paper, and, and they're basically still counting down to the day where they run out of, of paper. Now, here we have a man that is inclined to talking with birds, and <laughs> Uh, that's Nicolás Maduro and uh, Hugo Chávez, and this is an example of military populism. That's when you have, uh, for example, and it's sort of like the way uh, Cuba, the, the Cuban regime started, uh, and it's the idea that the armed forces should not be idle, they should step in and solve uh, social problems, and, and they should control all power and impose all types of control uh, over society to do that. 
And then Chavez, I don't know if you knew this, but he had a fixation with Simon Bolivar. I mentioned Simon Bolivar the other day, and his fixation was so strong that in private meetings and even in public meetings, he always requested, even if he went to a foreign country, he always requested an empty chair next to him for Bolivar. This, <laughs> this is what, and you can see them if you Google in some pictures in official meetings. He, he really thought Bolivar was watching him or next to him. And it's funny because, you know, Americans take them seriously. You know, there we go. <laughs> and then you have another brand of populism, which is a, it's my home country populism, and this is techno. I like to call it techno populism. This is like the technocrats that uh, can brandish credentials from U.S. universities and European universities. He studied at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and here he is being uh, receiving a standing ovation at John F. Kennedy's forum at Harvard. This was either earlier this year or at the end of last year. I'm not quite sure on the date, but this is recent. Now, to get more in-depth, I mean, a lot of people were asking me the other day, where does all this culture or this inclination to uh, populism and to these caudillos come from? And so let's talk about the origins of Latin American populism. First of all, in the economics, you have a mercantilist legacy. And what is mercantilism? Well, you think that wealth is acquired by accumulating gold and precious metals. And if you think that, it, that the way to get uh, rich is to sit on top of the largest amount possible of gold and metals, then you think it's necessary to implement uh, protectionism. And so the Spanish monarchy thought that protectionism was a prerequisite for the wealth of the crown. And they had to justify this with complex arguments about why the wealth of the crown was the same as the wealth of the people. And that's sort of what happens today. You know, in Europe, some European countries, you get the sense that people confuse the, the, welfare, of the, the welfare of the state with the welfare of the people. So what we have, and we're going to compare uh, Spanish colonization with English colonization, is an empire of commerce versus an empire of conquest. What happens when you try to use colonies as a source, as a short-term source of uh, funding for all your shenanigans and endeavors in the continental Europe is that the political institutions emerging from that economic order are not very legitimate or at least colonists don't find it very legitimate, and also the indigenous population. So in the absence of legitimate or, or, or political institutions that could be perceived as legitimate, the church and the military have arised as the institutions with the most credibility in Latin America, even till today. If you look at Latino Arometro, which is one of the most uh, comprehensive polling uh, studies done every year in Latin America, you will always find the institutions in society with the most credibility are the church and the military, even till today. And that has some negative consequences because in most Latin American countries, the chaos isn't over until the military steps in and puts order. And then the church uh, tends to have, or in recent times, at least maybe you can talk about more about this in the, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, they had a very, uh, some parts of the Latin American church had a leftist inclination, particularly the priests that taught uh, the theology of liberation. And what's a bit worrisome to us in Latin America these days is that the Pope Francisco, he's um, been meeting with representatives of that uh, 
type of interpretation, the, the theology of liberation in Rome. Another uh, tendency is to have these foundational myths. So we have like the, the cult of, of founding heroes. And by founding, you know, we have uh, this uh, characteristic that we like to refound our nations every like 20 or so years. So that, on average, there was a study done in South America and the average duration of a constitution is 20 years. And so uh, the problem is that we have uh, very uh, little institutional stability. And uh, these founding heroes, they come and go just as often as our constitution, but some of them stick around. <laughs> and Carlos Avino, uh, he's an Argentinian historian, and he said that foundational myths tend to be personalized, as often happens with all myths, which is why they end up singing praises in an unrestricted manner to certain figures that acquire in this way surreal outlines, as if they were the incarnation of all perfection, and as if because of this, they should remain shielded from any criticism. Sabino, uh, you know, and there you have uh, examples of the foundational heroes. Uh, Simon Bolivar, he's known as the liberator, el libertador. Then you have uh, Juan Manuel de Rosas, he's known, he was a ruthless dictator in Argentina, and ironically, he's known as restorer of the laws. I just found that very hard to believe, but... And then you have Eva Perón, which, like I showed you, she liked her luxury, and she's known as heroine of the downtrodden. And then you have uh, the myth uh, most prevalent today, I would think, because thanks to Hollywood and Gabriel Gael Garcia Bernal, that actor that portrayed Che Guevara in the Motorcycle Diaries, a very popular movie. Uh, and so Che Guevara is perceived as this, especially in that movie, The Motorcycle Diaries, he's perceived as this like, bona fide good guy fighting for the good causes, just like traveling around. And so he, um, they don't talk about his uh, executions without trial in Cuba or, or any of the other things he did that are not so nice. So that's just uh, to give you some context. But now I'd like to compare, uh, oh no, for, I have to go back one slide, sorry. So to continue with uh, Carlos Sabino's analysis, he says that Latin America is like this constant pendulum between dictatorship and anarchy. And it always starts with uh, the caudillo, whoever that is, it might be a woman. I mean, we're, we've modernized in that way, now we don't we also have women caudillos. And so it, he, they assume power, and normally this is done among applause. Sabino argues that this began with the same various leaders of the independence who imposed on their people, almost always, uh, uh, a type of dictatorship. So this was from the get-go. I mean, we didn't have uh, a more benign type of government when at the moment of independence. Then the caudillo proceeds to remove existing limits to his powers, that's step two. And then the caudillo works to make sure he stays in power indefinitely, that's step three. Step four, the caudillo dies or is deposed by some invasion, is hanged or goes into exile if he has the opportunity to escape in time. I put a direct, I inserted a direct quote in there because this is so true. I mean, you can, it, every Latin American case of a runaway caudillo fits in one of those categories. <laughs> and then, um, after the caudillo is gone in some way or another, several caudillos fight for power, leading to increasing chaos, and then it's all back to step one. 
So it's interesting to see where all this comes from because I mean we could have it, it could have turned uh, turned out completely different. So we have here uh, a table that compares Spanish colonies uh, with English colonies, and this is based on an excellent paper by North, uh, Douglas North. William Summerhill and Barry Weingast. It's called Order, Disorder, and Economics Change, Latin America versus North America. I think you learn in the 40 pages of that study more than in most Latin American studies courses in the US. Uh, because, I mean, I study Latin American study courses in the US and the interpretation I find this is very uh, similar to what I described before with the foundational myths and, and all those shortcomings. So this paper starts uh, pointing out that the Spanish colonies inherit a system of rights dependent on the king, and to this end, the uh, statist Spanish monarchy deemed it was necessary to implement all kinds of state interventionism in the economy. On the other hand, you have the English colony, which inherited a system of inalienable rights that is independent of the king. Why? Because they had experience with the rule of law in some way, and this was possible because these rights had long been recognized and defended by parliament and the courts, which were both independent of the king. This is a key difference. And all of this led to an environment where economic liberties were respected. On the second part of the table, you can see that uh, the administration in the Spanish colonies was centralized in the crown, and that it was, like I said before, for short-term goals and for the well-being of the crown. And then on the other side, uh, with regards to the English colonies. Um, the authors of this study, they have an interesting phrase. It's market protecting federalism. In some parts of Latin America, it's very rude to use the word federalism. It's almost understood as a synonym of separatism. So <laughs> that's how strong the centralist culture is in some parts of Latin America, like in my country, for example. But uh, what's What's uh, characteristic about English colonies is that they had this market-protecting federalism that allowed for some healthy competition between different regulatory frameworks between the different colonies. And so the Spanish colonies, they didn't get to experiment that way. They didn't have the incentive to compete that way. I mean, it's not that they didn't have the incentive. It just wasn't allowed. And so for these reasons, the authors of this study conclude that self-governing colonies became self-governing states. One of the main changes concerned the substitution of the national government for the British. The new United States also kept most of the British rules of the economic game, from property rights to free trade across colonies and states. But in Latin America, attempts to create new Republican institutions clash with political foundations of the old order. Under the royal system, rights were granted to individuals and groups based on personalistic ties to the crown. Their assaults were huge land grants to wealthy individuals and the church, special rights and privileges for the military, and a large series of local monopolies ranging from production to commerce to long-distance trade. Self-government occurred nowhere in the Spanish system. I think that, that's, that describes it very well. And of course, you know, I don't want to get all fatalist and pessimistic because the authors in the study are, really are not. They even mention uh, the notable exception of Argentina, which was at the beginning of the 20th century one of the most prosperous nations in the world. And it's no wonder that, you know, one of the most uh, lucid Latin American political philosophers at the time, he understood this. In 1854, he said that the colonies had been simple tributaries uh, for a period of, of three centuries. And then he says, uh, I mean, what's highlighted in bold, the colonies have always been fiscal states, always servile revenue machines, revenues that never come because poverty and backwardness, backwardness yields nothing. And so he says, 
basically the only difference is that we change the Spanish monarchs for local monarchs. Now let's talk about, I mean, that, that was just an explanation of why institutions might have evolved differently in South America than in North America. But now the, the economics of populism, right? And there's a very good book uh, by Sebastian Edwards called Left Behind, Latin America and the False Promise of Populism. This was published in 2010, I think. It's very good, it's a brief book. And it deals mostly with the economics of populism. So normally it entails unsustainable fiscal expansion, monetary largesse, that sounds similar to the US though, but <laughs> and then protectionism uh, and government interventionism, all done of course to redistribute income. That's the intended uh, objective. Sebastian Rennert says that most economic uh, uh, most of the economic policies of, of populism disregard basic budgetary and economic principles. And I can show you an example of this. Uh, you know, in most economics courses, and most people know that if you have a fiscal deficit, and if you monetize that, that fiscal deficit, eventually what you're going to get is inflation, especially if your currency is not the dollar. And so there was an interesting theory. You can always count on populists to come up with interesting theories. Uh, the economist Daniel Carboneto, who was advisor to Peruvian President Alan Garcia during the mid-1980s, he says, and I quote him, if it were necessary to summarize in two words the economic strategy adopted by the government starting in August of 1985, they are control and spend. Then he says, transferring resources to the poorest so that they increase consumption and create a demand for increased output. It is necessary to spend, he said, even at the cost of a fiscal deficit, because if this deficit transfers public resources to increase consumption of the poorest, they are going to demand more goods, and it will bring about a reduction in unit costs. Thus, the deficit is not inflationary. <laughs> so that's an interesting interpretation of economies of scale, you know. <laughs> now the stages of the populist cycle. First one is euphoria. Populist seems to be right. They are vindicated, you know, there's growth, real wages uh, go up, employment is high. Second stage, bottlenecks become visible. And so uh, partly as a consequence of expansionary demand and partly because of a growing lack of foreign exchange, at this point you begin to see currency devaluation, exchange controls, protectionism, and you can see how uh, they have to allow prices to reflect true scarcity of goods, and then there's a black market for foreign exchange. You know, you're seeing this in, in Venezuela and in Argentina. And then you have the prelude to collapse. Then you have... Uh, more of the same, but it's like pervasive shortages, extreme acceleration of inflation and capital flight. You have budget deficit deteriorating drastically because of significant declines in tax collection and increasing subsidy costs. So it's like a time bomb. And eventually government tries to curb inflation, cutting subsidies and devaluing the currency, but real wages start to fall precipitously and the ad atmosphere becomes unstable. You might argue that Venezuela is there, and Argentina might get there quickly. They had a, a, a what they call selective default yesterday. And then the fourth stage is the cleanup of the disaster. 
Uh, and Sebastian Edwards explains uh, this stage as, when all is said and done, the incomes, particularly of those of the poor segments of society, will have declined to a level significantly lower than when the whole episode began. So it's back to square one at a lower level. Now, as an example, uh, I have here some data from Argentina's popular cycle in, uh, between 1991 and 2001. First is euphoria, like I explained, and there you have uh, growth exceeding 5% in, in between 1991 and 1997. Uh, yet you have an average deficit during these boom years uh, of around 3.4% of GDP. And between uh, 1991 and 2001, public spending grew by 77%. Then bottlenecks became visible. There were large fiscal deficits, especially in the provinces. Uh, inflexible labor market and commercial protectionism. Then you have the third stage, which is the prelude to collapse. Exports prices fell. After 1998, there was capital flight, uh, the, and the currency board in Argentina ended. If, if you don't know, Argentina had for a while there a currency board, and it was not an orthodox currency board. I mean, they told people we're going to back up every circulating peso with one dollar. But that wasn't exactly true for most of the time during the, via, during the time that there was a currency board in Argentina. I mean, most of the times they, they, they didn't back up 100% of the circulating pesos. And also, uh, there were bank runs, there was a default, and devaluation. And then the cleanup of the disaster, what was the end result? 42% of households in Buenos Aires below the poverty line in 2002, which is three times higher than in 1992 when the whole thing began. And then we were back to where it all began, and that's where the Kirchners come in. But now I'd like to talk to you about Argentinian beef, you know, because I think it's a very good example of uh, how uh, populist policies in a, and just focusing in one industry, how it can ruin one industry which is, was one of the most uh, efficient in the country and was distinguished worldwide. And so, and, and this happened in, in the last decade or so. So the topic I'm going to talk about now is beef and populism. The Kirchners had a great idea. You know, it's, it's a very naive idea, but it, it sounds great. You know, everyone should eat more beef, so let's bring local prices down by restricting exports. So initially what they did is they prohibited exports for 180 days in 2006. They instituted the Registry of Export Operations, which is known as the ROE, R-O-E, the ROE Rojo, the red ROE. And, and it's red because of meat, like beef meat is red. And so uh, later on, they established a 15% tax on beef exports, along with further interventions in the beef markets in, in Argentina. So what happened? And where does this come from? I mean, where does, where does the idea that they can uh, affect distribution without impacting production come from? Well, it comes from John Stuart Mill's confusion with Jeremy Bentham and that got all the way to Latin America. And they think, I mean, it's, you can, this is the common, a common constant in economic uh, policy of populists is that they think they can always redistribute without affecting the incentives to produce. But they do affect the incentives to produce. So for example, what happened, there was uh, an increasing, there was uh, 
The controls that the government put in place, they basically promoted consumption of the existing stock of cows instead of increased production, which would have, been, would have meant the growth of the existing stock. So Argentine bovine stock decreased by 20% between 2005 and 2013. Then what happened? Well, the mommy cows, they, they got the axe. What does that mean? You know, if an increasing quantity of female cows in the age of reproduction are sacrificed, this indicates that in the future, the stock will go down. Since Argentine farmers were virtually not allowed to sell at the export or world price, it was not convenient for them to incur the cost of maintaining what is known as the wombs. That means the mommy cows. And it wasn't also convenient to fatten up the baby cows. So what happened? The sacrifice of wombs is currently at its highest point since 2007, the year when a process of massive liquidation of the stock began, falling from 57 million heads in 2008 to 47.9 million heads in 2011. I couldn't find more recent data on that. But this has a great impact on the export market. So for example, Argentina is no longer leader in beef exports, and this is an important fall, I'll tell you why. In 2005, Argentine farmers exported 745,000 metric tons of beef, making Argentina the third largest world beef exporter that year, and at 136 pounds of beef consumed per capita per year, they were also the second in the world in beef consumption. You would have thought that there was no problem with beef, uh, with access to beef in that country, but another hallmark of populism is to invent problems when there are none, you know, so <laughs> they, were, they were successful at exports, they were the second country in consumption per capita of beef, and that's where, when this whole story got started. But let's compare them to the U.S. The U.S., on the other hand, exported in 2005 472,600 metric tons. That is less than the 745,000 that the Argentinians exported that year. But let's fast forward to 2012. Argentina exported in 2012 only 164,000 metric tons, becoming the 11th largest beef exporter. They went from third to 11th. Per capita annual beef consumption went down to 121 pounds. So they, they didn't even get to consume more beef, which was the objective of this populist policy. And now, the U.S. exported, uh, I mean, not now, but in 2012, the U.S. exported 1.13 million metric tons of beef. So the U.S. more than doubled its exports of beef during the same time. So it looks like American beef exporters can thank the Kirchners for their recent bonanza. And so I, I just wanted to explain this uh, about uh, an industry that is, serves as an analogy for the way that it's very easy to destroy institutions and accumulated wealth and how it takes a much longer time to build those two back up, especially institutions. And I'm sorry that I can't end this one on a bright note, but th that would be the, the end of my presentation. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us a little something about Brazil? Yeah, uh, the Brazil is uh, the recent darling of the financial and business media, and especially in developed countries like the, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal and The Economist. They would talk wonders about Brazil and 
And some people joke, you know, they, there's always the saying, Brazil is the country of the future, and it always will be. <laughs> people make this joke about Brazil because what they do is that they do really well when the price of commodities go up and they have external favorable conditions. And then they start getting the sense that, oh, whatever we're doing is working, so we're going to keep doing the same. But no, because then the prices go down and there's another crisis. And what you're seeing right now in Brazil is they're waking up to, to another one of their, their nightmares and not as badly as before because, I mean, they have a somewhat responsible central bank still, which they didn't used to have prior to other uh, downturns. And, and what you have is an economy that has one of the highest tax rates in Latin America and it's one of the most regulated economies and most protected industrial sectors in Latin America. So uh, Brazil is actually a bad example because also it's such a huge country, such a huge market that they can get away with things that smaller countries like Bolivia and Ecuador cannot. You know, the smaller countries are the ones that get the most benefit out of being open, out of having a, a, an economy open to trade. And so uh, what I can tell you is that they depend, they do well when the prices of their exports are up and they don't do very well the rest of the time. Yeah. C could you give us the title of the 40-page study yes. on, on Spanish versus English colonization? Yes, I probably said it too fast. It's, let me look it up in my slide. It's, it's uh, order, disorder, and economic change, Latin America versus North America. Thank you. Sure. Hi. Well, I don't know if, uh, if everybody knows, but I'm from Argentina. And I would like to point out that in, well, during this, this period that she described, we were overpassed by Paraguay and Uruguay in meat production. And they are like 15 at 20 times smaller than us. So that's like a huge problem with meat production. But I would like to ask you, even though I know you're not a psychologist, unless you are and you surprise me, <laughs> that you, you, you have a nice uh, uh, paragraph that said, the wealth of the crown gets confused with the wealth of the people. And I would like to ask you if you think that that's a problem that comes from the government to the people and they impose that, of if that like, starts in the people and then gets to the government. Because when you show the, 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 the image of Evita's dress, the, the people in Argentina knows that, and people loved her because she wore that kind of fancy clothes. Because I, she, I was, that is really she was, she was redeeming them. She she was redeeming them. It's like they all wished to have uh, the power she had to take money away from su the supposed oligarchy, and and to to be rich. It's it's the whole perception of living through these leaders and and admiring absolute power. And, and that they can just do that, taking people's money. And it also reflects a full disrespect of institutions and private property. Because, I mean, it doesn't matter who gets affected. There's a perception of uh, this class has some people that have made some damage, and we don't care particularly who those individuals were, but they should all pay. That's, that's the, the very negative mentality that, that I think... Uh, favors populism, this sense of injustice and wanting to make a whole set of people pay, even though if not all of the constituents of a given group were uh, at fault for the injustices.
where is Chile in this uh, cycle, Latin American <laughs> cycle you propose? Well, yes, uh, Chile is an interesting case, and uh, and I, I've I've been to Chile three times. The first time was in 2010, and I was surprised because the first time I was there, I heard uh, recently elected uh, President Piñera, Sebastián Piñera, uh, talk about uh, the the he called it. I don't know how to translate it correctly. The dignified minimum salary, and he also talked about the uh, uh, tax credit for gold weddings. So if you had 50 years and you were still married, their equivalent of the IRS would give you a, a tax credit. And, and this was coming from an administration that was supposed to continue and deepen the market liberal reforms from the 70s. And so what you are seeing in Chile is kind of like a concession of the uh, moral, moral support uh, or, or the moral superiority of the reforms that were put in place during the 70s, of the economic reforms. And, and this is very sad because it is very evident that no country can, in, in Latin America can stand up to Chile when it comes to economic indicators, education indicators. I mean, they've done really well. They're the closest in Latin America to becoming a developed country. And yet, you see most of the press in the region criticizing their economic model, and you see that those who are expected to defend those economic reforms are actually trying to negotiate with a very radical left that is surrounding the, uh, the, the current government, Ms. Bachelet. And, and it's very sad because, you know, it, it's the one place where the reforms were deep enough to have tremendous positive effects. And so it'd be really, I, I think it'd be really easy to defend them there if, if you can defend them right anywhere. But, but it is, I find it's very depressing because you, you can see it in young kids in Chile. They are looking to Brazil uh, and to other countries such as Ecuador as models for educational reform, for example, because they think education should be totally free in colleges for all. And it's, and it's very uh, weird because they have the most coverage for college education in, in between all the Latin American countries, even though education is not free. But you know, according to people with leftist leanings, they don't like that fact because it contradicts the idea that if you give education away for free, most people are going to get education. And that's exactly the opposite of what has been going on in Chile. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about more about the seduction of the revolutionary mindset in youth culture. Um, it certainly is present just from an ear to the ground in my college campus one of the reasons I think why leftism is popular in the states is because of the seduction of the um, of the revolution. And I was wondering if you thought that that, for the libertarian movement, if that is a good marketing strategy, strategy is to show maybe the revolution of liberty, or if you think it's dangerous to associate yourself with that kind of idea at all. And that's a good question, and I mean, Latin Americans love to talk about revolution on whatever their politics are, and and some people argue that it's good PR and that it's really good to uh, 
to use that concept or the appeal of that concept in our favor with regards to our ideas. So for example, uh, Jose Piñera, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, he regularly talks about the revolution of the workers in Chile. And what he's referring to when he uses that phrase is the social security reform in which basically they privatized social security in Chile more than 20 years ago and they gave a private savings account to each worker. And the way he explains it, and I think it's, it's very good to explain it to people that even don't share libertarian politics is that they made workers proprietors and they made workers sovereign over their own savings. Because in most Latin American countries what you have is that uh, the funds of social security get stolen for the current populist government. It's, and it's happening, it, it's happened recently in Venezuela and it's happening right now in Ecuador. And so that's an example of one person that thinks it's good and has been using the concept, uh, he used it to, to sell the social security reform during the 70s in Chile. And, and then you have a historian sociologist, uh, Sabino, that I was quoting on several slides. He thinks that uh, liber uh, libertarians and classical liberals, that in, in contexts like the Latin American context, and especially in uh, context of, in audiences where you have lots of young people, that we should be focusing on promoting a, cer a certain type of uh, classical liberal utopia, or, or as Jeffrey Myron referred to it, libertarian land. Like we should talk more about libertarian land because that inspires people and you have to, I mean, those guys are always talking about utopia and so there are alternative utopias and why not talk about the one that reflects our ideas? I don't think there's anything wrong with that personally. Uh, but the thing with, why there's an appeal of uh, the revolution and the notion of revolution. Um, it's very interesting because uh, several of the writers and poets in Latin America tend to veer towards communism or some lesser form of socialism. And I, I had the privilege to ask, about, ask a question about this to uh, Mario Vargas Llosa, Peruvian Nobel Prize of, in, in Literature. And I asked him, because he used to be a, a communist and then a socialist, and so I asked him, why do you think writers, poets in general in Latin America go that way? And he's like, because the, the idea of, as, as intellectuals, the idea of doing something new, building something new from scratch, and, and having the pretense that you can make it perfect, it's very attractive to any type of artist or, or intellectual. And then if you counteract that with the classical liberal point of view that you're not trying to perfect man, that you're just accepting human beings as they come, it's not that appealing. Because it's like, granted, they're not perfect and we're giving up, we're not gonna make them perfect, we're gonna accept them the way they are. So he said that's why it was appealing and that's what appealed to him. But then he said most artists and intellectuals are very, um, are very individualistic in the way they conduct their businesses and in the way they uh, set up to develop their ideas. And that's how, that's why a lot of them you find uh, as, as they grow older or as they find out about certain abuses in these regimes, they, they shift their opinions. And that's what happened to him when he was horrified at what happened in Cuba with uh, the poet Alberto Padilla and the repression of freedom of expression during the, at the beginning of the Cuban dictatorship. And, and it happened to Octavio Paz during the 50s. It didn't happen to others, like Cortázar, Gabriel García Márquez, 
Pablo Neruda, they all died in admiration of Fidel Castro. So, you know, it might happen, it might not. It definitely is appealing, and that's what we have to strive to uh, demystify. So. Yeah, you've, you've already touched on this, but I'm gonna ask the question anyway. Uh, I'm always confounded that every 10 to 15 years you have this cycle in Argentina where <laughs> you go from crisis and then stability and then crisis again. And, and it, it, it's so um, amazing, frankly, that there is no space for an alternative narrative to come up of why you have these recurrent crises going all the way back to the 1920s. Um, now, you, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the hold that the populist, uh, uh, I don't know, ideology has. But would you be able to um, go a little bit further and say that there's not enough of a of an alternative narrative to support uh, opposition that would be more of a libertarian vein in some of these countries. And the sec second part of it is, it's particularly discouraging, as you pointed out, that even when you have examples of success, such as in Chile, that the impulse then is to go back to the populist uh, mentality. And that seems to be a very hard mountain to climb once you've proven some success in the first place. Yes, uh, a lot of the times, uh, businessmen in Latin America, in the countries that are have done successful reforms and, and in the countries where businessmen are enjoying the fruits of successful market liberal reforms, they are content with sitting back and just taking care of their businesses. They don't care about, the, they don't think ideas are important. And they have sort of a, this technocrat mentality and they don't, they think that uh, economic growth and development speak for themselves, that they don't need to defend certain principles that made that possible. And then on the other countries where reforms weren't deep enough or have not yet happened to merit that name, uh, what you have is a, a very, uh, I don't know if corporative, corporative, I don't know if that's a translation, but you have a, a, a business class that is very much in cahoots with the government. It's a business class that if, it, these are businessmen that if they are not doing business with the government, they would very much like to be doing so. Because <laughs> like for example, you have places like, like my country right now, if you're in the insurance business in Ecuador, more than 50% of the insurance market is doing it with the government. The government is the largest purchaser by far of insurance. And then if you're in the mortgage market in Ecuador, then uh, more than 50% of the mortgages are repurchased by the government with funds from our social security. That's scary, you know, but uh, then if you're in the marketing and advertising business, the ads sold, uh, I mean, the entire uh, amount of money spent in ads in Ecuador, more than 60% is purchased by the government. So if you have an ad agency, you want to sell to the government. You know, those are the big contracts. If you have a construction company, you also want to do that because they're building a gazillion amount of public works and roads. And, and so it, private businessmen, they are not there when it comes to defending the ideas of liberty because it means, in those contexts, it means bad business, but bad business is for them in the short term. I mean, they don't, most of them don't realize that in the long term, they're gonna go after them as well. <laughs> because we've had 10 tax reforms in the past eight years and, and, and they complain about uh, confiscatory taxes and they complain about confiscations and expropriations when they do happen. But then, then you're like, but I told you this was gonna happen. This is, what they're <laughs> this is where, where they were going. 
And then, then you have this like look of I'm like, wow, yes. And so it, there, I think there's a general underappreciation of the importance of ideas. And the other side of that is that the left completely understands the importance of ideas and they have hijacked most of the uh, most of the teaching in colleges in Latin America, not only public schools but also private schools. So while civil society, businessmen, and others are busy trying to make money, they are busy at trying to conquer the hearts and minds <laughs> of the next generation of politicians. So I had taken a few years ago a history course on the Dominican Republic, and I forget the, you know, the awful guy that had been there and in power, and um, they didn't make the connection to the different English for Spanish uh, colonization um, impact. Although I have heard that from uh, South American history classes, and I was wondering, do you think like the concept of machismo, I think was the the term they used in that book. Um, is that connected to the like Iberian colonial culture, or is that something independent that's kind of just prevalent in some of Latin America now? Well, I mean, I've heard in Chile, for example, that part of Michelle Bachelet's appear is that, uh, appeal is that she's considered as this caring mother, and so people uh, like her because they look at her as as this uh, caring mother, and the other. You know, the other side of the coin of machismo is uh, the appreciation of mothers in Latin American society. So the, the, there's the idea of the strong men and certain professions and things on, that only men should do, and then there's the idea of, but the mother, the figure of the, 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 the caring mother that should be taken care of. And the only current example that I find of that is, you know, what I heard in Chile about Bachelet, why she was so appealing even after her first government, which you might argue was not that great. Thank you. Sure. Hey, Gabriela. Um, I'm sure you have read this book called Manual del Prospecto Idiota Latinoamericano, co-authored by yes. Alvaro Vargas Llosa. It's translated something like a manual for the perfect Latin American idiot. <laughs> and there's this chapter in this book that says that the Latin American idiot has friends, idiot friends, abroad. He has idiot <laughs> friends in, in the States, and he has idiot friends in, in Europe. And I wanted to ask you whether, what's your opinion on that? Why is it so appealing to, especially in Europe, why is it so appealing the the populism situation in Latin America, and why do they love Hugo Chavez and why do they hate so much Pinochet, even though Pinochet did really good things for Chile and Hugo Chavez not so good things for Venezuela? Yes, uh, uh, someone who writes uh, and, and writes really well about, the, wrote really well about this was uh, Carlos Rangel. There's even a book by him called Third Worldism. El Tercer Mundo, and, and then he explains why is it that Europeans and Americans have this fascination with the idea that before colonization, uh, the, the Spanish found in Latin America pretty much paradise on earth. And, and there's this historical interpretation that when we were colonized, uh, there was this beautiful, almost utopic order 
that they came and smashed it down. And, and you know, it wasn't so perfect and it wasn't so pretty either. And, and so uh, he, he uh, demystifies that interpretation of colonization and then he says, uh, and what it is at the bottom of it is an anti-Western rejection of civilization because that's when Latin American civilization began with all its good, I mean, like you say in English, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but that's when something akin to civilization began. And they try to present it in a negative light, making it look like it was a deterioration from what was before, you know, during the Incas and the Mayas. And, and that wasn't so perfect either. The, uh, those were collectivist uh, regimes, they were hierarchical, there was no individual freedom to speak of, at least in the modern sense. And, and so in uh, what I think is that uh, there's this uh, notion of uh, the, the white man's burden, or called in, in, in other parts the noblesse oblige, like you know we're going to teach them how to do things right because we're so great, that, that that's, there's some of this pretension in, um, in the works of uh, European intellectuals that have been very influential in Latin America. And you even have particular cases like, I don't know if you guys have heard of Rigoberta Menchú, the indigenous uh, lady from Guatemala. Her image has been marketed around the world and she was basically a fabrication of certain Europeans that wanted to present her as the uh, this oppressed poor woman that was going to rise and and you know, redeem the oppressed indigenous populations of Guatemala. Yes, the indigenous populations of Guatemala had been oppressed, but no, she was not this poor indigenous woman. In fact, if you go and ask Guatemalans, pretty much any Guatemalan on the street will tell you she's very good at business. She owns a pharmacy chain and, and she does not come from the middle of, of some indigenous camp that was untouched by modern civilization. She's pretty much grown up being educated in schools that other Guatemalans are educated in. But, but the, she was marketed as this indigenous lady coming out of you know, these untouched uh, towns by, by modernization. And, and it's done in a, in a way to promote ideas of populism also. So it, it, it always comes with a myth, and the myth always has some grain of truth which makes it so powerful. Um, I really enjoyed your lecture, but um, I guess um, it seems as though most of this, this discussion um, is dependent upon seeing Latin America as being um, very special in its psychology and its culture and sort of um, that being its singular determinant that um, takes it down into the same um, economic spiral again and again and again. But um, it seems as though no country or, in, or no culture really escapes that. I mean, our presidential candidates in the United States, for example, look the same time after time after time. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like instead of um, focusing on revolution, the United States were very focused on nostalgia. We're always returning to something um, in election cycles. So I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Thank you. I guess it's, it's I mean, it's, I didn't mean with my presentation to say that we are unique in, in, being, uh, in falling prey to these uh, myths and, and to these pendulums. Uh, but I would take the United States pendulum any other day over our pendulum. <laughs> it's, it's just, uh, I know there are populists here as well, but if Hugo Chavez was el ever elected, I mean, let's imagine Hugo Chavez was American and he managed to get to the, the, to the White House. I don't think he would have been able to do 
10% of what he did in Venezuela, just because the, of the culture of, of resistance here to uh, the intrusion in, in people's lives. And, and you know, you have a whole history of what, what Robert McDonald's has been talking about all week, this like whole culture of resistance against taxes without representation. And, and there's also ingrained in your culture a distrust of government, which is not uh, part of our traditional culture. There are some important, very distinguished leaders at the moment of independence, a few others afterwards, which is what I talked to about Tuesday, but they're not a reflection of the, the predominant ideas in the region. And also you have the, uh, the Mary O'Grady from the Wall Street Journal, she, she gave a speech for a Cato event where she said that the problem in Latin America is that wealth creation or, or being wealthy is almost considered immoral. You consider profits immoral, and, and so the consequence is, is that people are, are, are looking to other ways. I mean, they think there's no moral superiority in doing honest business and becoming rich through it, and, and that's a big obstacle. And it has to do with the field of ideas, not so much with economic policy. And what you have in the 1990s is lots of economic policy reforms. Some of them were very coherent market liberal reforms, but they were not accompanied by a much necessary discussion of the ideas undergird, uh, that undergird those reforms, which is the, the moral justification for those reforms. I feel like you almost uh, answered the question I'm about to ask, but what I wanted to hear more about was this, the origins of this fast intellectual fascination with the Redeemer, because um, you know, Marquez and his ilk, right? I mean, they're interested in social engineering and American intellectuals are also interested in social engineering, but why is it such that it was, it's really in Latin America where uh, those tendencies manifest themselves, you know, in policies, right? So more about the origins of this redeemer fascination. Yeah, it, some people argue it has to do with religion uh, the, the very strong influence of, of religion and, and also it, it might have to do with these, uh, the way that history is taught and, and history is taught uh, in a way that they talk about the, I mean each country has their national equivalent to George Washington, right? And so the difference of it is is that here in the United States though in lower uh, grades of school, it might be taught in a very uh, simple way that's pretty much positive. You do have a culture of questioning things and of, you know, of just simple curiosity. And I found, uh, I, I, find that I found that very striking when I came to high school here in the U.S. in my junior year. It was very uh, surprising and I, I was amazed that history teachers would ask you, well, what do you think of this interpretation? Because I was, we never asked those questions. In most of Latin American schools, you are given an interpretation, and that's the interpretation, which is considered almost the official bona fide truth. And so what happens is that they teach you uh, a very uh, glorified version of our leaders. And then you think, well, this exists, and you know, this guy in politics might be a reincarnation of that guy that I learned about when I was in, in elementary school. So it might be religion, and it might also be the way that history is taught in a very critical way. So. Uh, you're carrying the torch in a hostile environment. You're fighting against 500 years of culture and tradition. What success do you feel you're having? In and what tactics do you find 
uh, work better? Well, uh, I always like to think of the silver linings of, of things, and the, the, the silver lining is that uh, we do have a clear concept of separation of church and state, which is not present in other regions of the world, where I think the work we do would be much, much harder. <laughs> and so at least we have that on our side. And um, the tactics that I think work really well is to plant doubts about these myths, the, these history myths. I think that's the most successful thing. Like one of the recent myths is that of the Washington Consensus and about how uh, neoliberal, they call them neoliberal. I have never met, I, I'm, I've yet to meet someone that calls themselves a neoliberal. So it's kind of like a made up word. But uh, they talk about neoliberal reforms and policies implemented during the 1990s. And when you get down to the facts, and, and I find this is a very successful tactic to show people the facts about the 90s and, and to explain to them, look, public spending went up. That's not a, liberal mar a market liberal policy. And look, there was monetization of public debt. That's also not a classical liberal or market liberal policy. And there's all these things. So you have to uh, point out the facts and also uh, show that political rhetoric doesn't always go along with what is actually done. Because there was a lot of damage done during the 90s to our ideas by politicians that preached something and did something totally different. And, and so I think that's a very successful tactic. And you always have good graphs and, and you could show data, like for example, how I pointed the, out the increase in spending during the 90s in Argentina, I mean 77%, and they were calling this guy the market liberal reformer, you know? So uh, people talk about these things and they've become cliches in our region. And I, th I find it's good to ask people who talk about that, oh really, so what was the growth in spending? What was the growth in the bureaucracy, you know? And so you start pointing out these things and pointing out the inconsistencies and it, it's very, I find it's, it's very effective. And for example, in several countries we've done Cato universities events such as these, where we invite uh, lawyers, historians, businessmen who present from a classical liberal point of view different topics. And several students have come up to us after these events and say, well, what can I do now? We've had 718 Latin American students at these events since 2009. So we have a big database of uh, Cato U alumni in Latin America from 16 different countries. And they, a lot of them emailed us or come up to us afterwards and they're like, what can I do in Bolivia to tell people about this? You know, how can I start uh, promoting these ideas? And then, you know, we try to connect them with different organizations like Students for Liberty that now has chapters in Latin America. And it's uh, amazing the work they do. They start doing their own events. They start inviting scholars and they get local funding to do all different kinds of forums. A lot of them have started writing newspaper columns and the newspaper columns are very effective in Latin America as a gateway to get interviewed in TV, in major media. So we're, we're starting to see a lot of that. And so I think that's a very effective tactic. Best of luck with it. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, you had mentioned that there's a lot of anti-Western, particularly anti-US sentiment, which people talk about colonialism or things of that ilk. Uh, I guess I have sort of two questions relating to that. The first of which is um, how much blame does the U.S. get for the uh, 
the crime from the war on drugs that occurs in Latin America, um, and is that thread connected? And then sort of secondarily, not exactly related at all, but I remember reading something uh, a couple months ago, perhaps, about some fairly famous Latin American historian who had written uh, sort of a damning critique of U.S. intervention, who then had sort of backed off from his views and. Uh, oh yes, Galeano. Anyway, I, just, I was just curious if you could speak about both those things a little bit. Yeah, this is a, a, a very funny thing that happens with uh, Latin American intellectuals ever so often. Eduardo Galeano wrote a book that's called The Open Veins of Latin America. And it's, uh, it's required reading and it's suggested reading in lots of Latin American studies in college, uh, U.S. colleges and in most uh, colleges in Latin America. And it's a Marxist interpretation of contemporary Latin American history. It's kind of like the opposite of Rangel's book. And, and so if you read that, I mean, most students that uh, I meet in Latin America have read that, and that's their gateway into being interested in politics, history, and, and philosophy. And, and then I always tell them, you have to read The Antidote, <laughs> this other one. But, um, but what happened with uh, Mr. Galeano from Uruguay, and, and his book is still bestseller. You can find it in, in the... Uh, glass windows at most bookstores in Latin America. What happened is that he came out at, at a conference in Brazil a few months back, and he said, I wrote The Open Vase of Latin America when I was too young to know adequately about the topics I wrote about, so I don't think I would have written that today. He said that just like that. And it wasn't part of his presentation. It wasn't like a, a big announcement that, that he said, I'm going to make a big announcement. No, it was just like it came out in a Q&A session after he had spoken about something totally unrelated. And then it was like a bomb. Every Latin American newspaper reproduced this uh, statement because it's a very highly influential book, and he, he took it back. And the, what was the other question? Uh, the other question was about um, how much does the U.S. get blamed for the drug war-related crime? Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the U.S. gets a lot of blame, but I think mostly focused in Central America and Mexico. Not, South Americans, uh, I mean, uh, are not so much affected. They, they are, but they don't feel, especially in the cities where most of the population is concentrated, they don't feel the brunt of the war on drugs. I think Mexicans would certainly feel very much negatively, negatively affected by prohibition. Okay. Um, I have a question about. Uh, it's not about Latin America. It has to do with uh, fruits of the Mexican, uh, the Mex uh, Mexico. Um, do you think the same ideals and same problems uh, the people are facing in South America with their govern, uh, Latin America with their countries, is that what Mexico is facing today? The same, because I mean, as you know, the PRI was, they were pretty much a dictatorship for 50 years. They controlled Mexico, and then they went away, and now they're back. So is this the same thing that's going on in Latin America? Well, I think the Mexicans are uh, have improved a lot, and in part, uh, much of it thanks to the free trade agreement, the NAFTA, because you know when you open up an economy to trade, you also get a lot more exchange of ideas, and you also get a, a huge amount of opportunities that were not there before, opportunities independent of of political connections. And, and that has radically changed Mexico. There's even a book about the new middle class in Mexico. I, I believe it's Luis Lacalle, the name of the, uh, the, the author of that book. And it's called Clase Mediero. And, and he talks about this phenomenon that for the first time Mexico has this huge middle class. And that, that's something recent. And I think 
that bodes well for the future of Mexico. I think they're in better standing than um, the other examples I mentioned in my presentation. I didn't get to talk about the shiny examples, so. Thank you. I'll be very brief. Uh, I didn't, this is not my subject. I came to talk to you. I want to address his question. Uh, um, there are a number of excellent books. The Amer Americans are to blame, in my opinion, for all the violence and the war on drugs by taking a criminal approach they have a great uh, handout here on the experience in Portugal, decriminalizing uh, drugs. Uh, the violence comes from the gangs that control it, not from the addicts that are taking it. And uh, it uh, will be a lot cheaper and a lot more effective to decriminalize or take a decriminalized approach. And this uh, uh, Portugal study that's available here demonstrates that. Anyway, I just, that was a thought that I was just interested in looking at your uh, um, CV. Uh, did you ever encounter Tom Sowell, uh, George Mason? I used to read him a lot. Always loved his column. Oh, I wasn't. I, still, still I wasn't fortunate enough to have uh, a lot of the the great libertarians from George Mason Economics Department or Law Department as professors because I was at the School of Public Policy, which uh, is even in a different campus. So I didn't. Uh, do you know? I, I have not seen him recently. Uh, is he still? around and productive, you know? Oh. Anyway, that's it, but thank you. I enjoyed okay. your talk. Thank you. Thank you.